This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. And I'm Jarrett Murphy from City Limits, and we're joined today by Professor John Mollenkoff, who is a distinguished professor of political science and sociology at the CUNY Grad Center and director of the Center for Urban Research. Thanks for being on the show. It's great to be with you guys. I'm a huge fan of both of your work, so Thank I feel you. honored to be part of the team here. Uh, and so uh, I know I have, I'm sure Ben, have been reading your work about New York City for many years, dating back to college years for me. Uh, for some listeners who might not be as read in, can you give a little background? How long have you been following city politics? How do you, you kind of come to this discussion? Well, I've been writing about city politics and studying city politics since I was in graduate school in the period of 67 to 72 and teaching about it from 72 onwards when I got my first academic job. But in 1980, I moved to New York and I spent a year working for the Department of City Planning for Herb Sturrs and directing the Economic Development Division there. And then since 81, I've been here at the Graduate Center teaching urban politics and policy and writing more about New York City. Up until I moved here, I read a lot about New York and I thought a lot about New York. And of course, Robert Caro's masterpiece is something that every urbanist probably reads carefully from cover to cover numerous times. But having the job with city planning was great because, um, among other things, I, I took one day a week to go out to the borough offices of city planning and asking the borough office directors to just take me around to whatever was interesting going on in, in their bailiwicks. And so I got a really intense year-long introduction to the fabric of New York City. It was really a great experience. So we're talking on the morning after, the afternoon after the mayor's fifth State of the City speech. Uh, what were your general impressions of the mayor's talk? Well, as a longtime, you know, neighbor and friend and supporter of the mayor's, I, I go for his rhetoric. And I find him articulate often in a way that his detractors don't. And I noticed the press buildup with the speech really sort of downplayed anything important being con contained in it, which uh, um, I, I thought actually he came across in a very statesmanlike way. And not some people accuse him of being a little bit of a know-it-all and my way or the highway. And um, maybe there was a touch of that in the speech, but, but I thought there was a lot of um, you know, reaching out to different people and constituencies and <clears throat> showing that he connected with them and cared about them. And, um, you know, as a, as a standard bearer nationally for urban liberalism, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody who was more articulate or, or better at it. I think, you know, Garcetti in Los Angeles is a, is a near peer, um, but I, I don't think there are too many other people in that, in that league. I think one of the things um, that struck me, one, I think it was one of his better speeches, and I think part of that was because there's a little sort of inside baseball, but, you know, he very often for some of his speeches has had sort of bulleted notes and gone a little more extemporaneously, and this one was much more of a word-for-word -word reading. Absolutely. And I he think clearly, that helped him a he lot. He clearly practiced that speech a number of times, so it came off much more naturally than when he's doing the bullet point thing, yeah, I he, agree. Yeah, he's, he's had, I think, some choppier speeches, and this was smoother. Um, and I think the other thing, you know, that you you noted about reaching out to uh, different constituencies and really trying to make it um, an inclusive uh, speech also is, you know, 
that there's this theme that he's still struggling with some of the first impressions that he made, I think, and we still see that happening now into the second term, that even if he talks about, um, you know, uniformed service uh, employees of the city, um, you know, there's still this thing hovering over him that he doesn't care that much about, uh, you know, the rank and file NYPD, for example, and I think that some of that is always coloring. Or reaching out to the corrections officer who uh, suffered that, that beating and, you know, <clears throat> Talking about talking with him and his wife and so forth, and that and that that he wouldn't tolerate that kind of um, thing going on, even as he works to, you know, change change Rikers. Uh, and and at the beginning, where he called out the various uniform services folks, the oldest sanitation person from Staten Island, and and the others, um, showing that he really cared about the uni uniform services. And I think also subtly he was drawing attention to the fact that uh, the sort of the, the image of the, of, of the white cop or the, the Irish fireman or so forth is, is not accurate today, that the city's workforce is much more diverse and reflective of, of the different communities of the city. And, uh, but to, to lift up the importance of public service is something that uh, we, should, we should honor rather than, you know, criticize a bunch of, you know, gold-bricking public employees who are only concerned for their own paycheck or whatever. The importance of a, of a speech like this, what do you think it is, and th has that changed over the time that you've been looking at the mayor? I mean, did people care about Ed Koch's State of the City speech or, or John Lindsay? Did they have the same place in the year? And what, what, what role does this play in Bill de Blasio's uh, kind of legislative and governing year, do you think? Well, going back to Lindsay, <clears throat> he clearly had very big visions and ideas and aspirations for changing urban policy and accomplished a lot of it. So um, more maybe in restructuring government than uh, anything. But, you know, he had many, many new service functions, increased the city's um, revenue base and expenditure base, um, Bill has benefited from the fact that he's had an updraft from the economy and from tax revenue, so he has been able to expand things. But I, I don't think it was was at the same scale as um, as under Lindsay. Koch, you know, Koch was was kind of a different kind of mayor at different points. And towards the end, when he was under such political pressure, the launching of the mayor's ten-year housing program was really you know, a, a landmark uh, policy initiative that all the subsequent mayors have tried to um, expand, improve on, and so forth. Um, by the time the uh, Bloomberg administration came around, all of the NREM housing that the Koch plan had been built on was, was gone. So, and real estate uh, prices are much higher in New York City than they were then. So it's f fiscally much tougher and, and politically and practically much tougher to find places to to build affordable housing, but um, you know, Koch left a definite stamp on the on the train of New York City. If you, I mean, you're a Bronx resident, just think about how the South Bronx has changed since uh, the mid '70s. It's a completely different, uh, completely different place, and that was largely due to the, initially at least, to the to the Koch housing program. He talked a lot. I would say maybe three quarters of the speech was dedicated to this 12-point agenda of ways that 
his administration is making this the quote unquote fairest big city in the country. Um, what do you think of that framing and how did the, the 12 point uh, agenda that he outlined before he really got into anything new, which we can get to in his, his democracy agenda, um, what do you think of that Ferris big city in America framing? I, I think that was one of the well, questions I, I wanted to ask you Well, as I said at the, the outset, you know, I'm really sympathetic to it. And, and certainly uh, American society as a whole and urban society and New York society in particular have become more and more unequal. And that's reflected in a lot of different policy problems and challenges that face the city. And I think he addressed a bunch of them in, in the speech. But certainly lifting the floor, lifting wages, paid paid leave, um, expanding uh, pre-K to three-year-olds. Um, all of these things are a kind of little new deal for New York City that's, I, th I think, more ambitious than uh, you can point to in Boston or Chicago or Los Angeles or or our peer cities, really. And there, there are obviously limits on what a mayor can do to change overall patterns of inequality. But to highlight the issue as something we need to address front and center and to figure out a lot of big and small ways from a mayoral point of view, from a municipal point of view, to try to take a whack at it, I think um, that's that's great. The the way that the speech framed it, sort of like here's a twelve here's a twelve point program. Most of those, or all of those points, were things that are kind of already in motion. You know, the housing plan is now almost five, almost four years old, um, and you know his obviously pre-K pledge last year to create 100,000 good-paying jobs. Most of those efforts are um, ones that he announced earlier and are now underway. Right. And and so given like the the I think the I think scope that... of the goal of making it the fairest city. It almost was like the speech should have been about those 12 points. Did it make sense to then say, and so we're doing that stuff, and now let's talk about democracy? Well, the press lead-up to the speech was that he wasn't going to address big substantive problems like the subway and public housing. He was going to you know, distract our attention to talking, by talking about uh, our democratic deficits, which we, we clearly have. If you look at the declining turnout figures, over the span of his mayoralty and the previous ones, and you combine that with people getting into city council seats in Democratic primaries where 5,000 people vote and your 2,700 votes over the other person's 2,300 votes means that you are one of 51 people making really important decisions for the city. That's dismaying. That's not full-throated democratic competition and participation. So I think it's, he's very right to, you know, lift that issue up. I, I think if he'd listened to his high school debate coach, the coach would have advised not to go with a 12-point plan followed up by a 10-point plan. That yeah. More like three points is uh, <laughs> makes a more convincing speech. But uh, I, th I think it's... Uh, I would have preferred if the 12 points were whittled down into a couple of key themes and then elaborating on how you really, he didn't, other than creating some commissions and appointing a figure, he didn't really say, well, here's the way to fix the fall off of democratic participation in the city. And maybe that, maybe we don't really know what the answer is there, but it would have been great to hear a little bit more about that from my perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think a few of the, 
planks of the Democracy NYC agenda that relate to participatory budgeting in schools and civics education in schools are very interesting and worthwhile. I'm not sure um, how much of a direct connection those will be able to to be made to to more participation, but I, they certainly can't hurt. Um, well, there's a considerable academic literature on what adolescents know about politics and care about politics. And the answer is they don't know very much and they're very kind of cynical and alienated about politics. And yes, we have required courses on American government in, in high school, but I think much more can be done to get uh, high school students involved in their neighborhoods, researching the issues that face the city, um, learning basic political skills like speaking, organizing, and so forth. I think that uh, the literature all suggests that, that doing that works and that it's much needed. And so I would, I would endorse that uh, quite, quite strongly. Yeah, there's, there's an organization I'm fairly familiar with called Generation Citizen that does what they call action civics. And, you know, they are coming through the DOE to do, to do it in classrooms, you know, they've been growing and they've had a lot of city council support. It'll be interesting if, you know, that's uh, a direction that uh, the de Blasio administration goes in. But you mentioned a couple of these things. Um, he announced he's going to he's going to create a charter revision commission. Uh, what's your reaction to that? It seems to me I don't quite get it why that's necessary to look at campaign finance when the campaign finance system is tweaked basically every year by the city and the campaign finance. Evidently, the speaker of the city council doesn't see it that way either. Um, well, I guess there's, it, to the extent that it's a brainstorming function that can draw in the best knowledge and, and tap people for ideas and come up with some concrete things to do that it, it might not be a, a, you know, a, an, an irrelevant effort. It, it, it could be something. I, I think, number one, um, that if we can change state law about the way the Board of Elections is run and improve election administration in the city uh, and improve the openness of, of the political process to potential candidates, that would be a real step forward. Um, I've worked for a long time with the Board of Elections data and the people there, and I think they they try hard and do a very good job with the kind of limited framework that they're under, but the Board of Elections is represents the two political parties in the city, and they're not really that keen on changing anything that would threaten kind of, you know, the, the power of incumbency. And I think any political scientist would say that if you want more political engagement, you need more political competition. And at the at the base level, if you look at the primary Democratic primaries for the city council and the the assembly and the Senate, um, they're very low engagement, low turnout affairs. And and partly the Republican Party, I think, has completely failed to be a competitive party. You know, except in so far as Giuliani and and Bloomberg were competitive at the citywide level by building on a Republican core and attracting a lot of Democratic defectors. But if you if you go down below that level, even to the controller and to the public advocate, um, there's, there isn't really any party competition in the general elections. And um, Three Republican city council members out of 51. Yeah, so, so something has to change to, uh, to make that more vigorous at, at the grassroots level. 
And I wonder, uh, de Blasio's prescription for that, or it seems to be what he suggests the commission look at, is the campaign finance end. But obviously that's only part of what permits competition to exist. There's the ballot access, other yes. issues, some, most Those of which are, are controlled issues. by the state. Yeah. But if you were sort of setting the agenda for this commission with the, the remit that the mayor has given them, other than things he mentioned in the speech, is there anything else that the city should be looking at in terms of how do you make democracy more, more vibrant? Well, I mean, to me, the answer is comp some form of competition. So that, that would involve, I think, recruiting and training people to become candidates. And um, ballot access is, has been a, a major hurdle there. The county party organizations are very good at um, looking at somebody's petitions and figuring out that they're no good and that they won't be allowed to run. Uh, so opening up that process is important. And, you know, I think the Campaign Finance Board does an excellent job and the, and the system combined with term limits has really opened up things very considerably since the period, you know, before when there were no term limits and no real public financing and the city council people were basically there for life. Um, so it's not perfect now, but it's certainly improved a lot. And the city council, when we did charter reform in 89 and 90, people wondered, you know, can we have a, a city council that is really vigorous and has good people serving on it and debates real things and so forth? And there was a lot of skepticism at that time from longtime city watchers, but I think the city council has emerged as a as reasonably strong body and a training ground for people running for higher office uh, at this point. Public financing probably would help some, but I still think that finding ways to have more candidates running in primaries and making general elections more competitive would draw out more more voters. Because the incumbents, think about it, they know who elected them. They probably know their names and addresses are close to it. And as long as they can count on being reelected by that group of people, they're not so interested in expanding participation. Okay. What about, uh, just to throw out two things that past charter commissions have looked at in terms of improving democratic performance in the city. One is the, the effect of term limits. Certainly had some effect on how many people sought competitive races this time around. And Bloomberg's great idea of uh, nonpartisan elections. I was just going to bring that up. Um, so I, I started out being a big opponent of term limits because it takes a while for legislators to learn, you know, how things work and how to be effective. And I, I would say that takes at least a term. And then if you're basically a lame duck in your second term, it might not be enough time. So perhaps three terms would be a little bit better, but of course that would slow down the turnover. So I'm a little bit agnostic about that. I'm against going to nonpartisan, open to all primaries. Everywhere they've been used, and they've been used in the state of Louisiana for a very long time, and also in, uh, by the California state constitution requires all California municip municipalities to have this type of, of primary, turnout actually falls. And the reason is because parties organize electoral engagement. And if you take parties out of the equation, then who else is out there organizing? Maybe it's unions, maybe it's 
religious denominations, maybe it's, um, you know, the real estate board, or but whoever it is, is not engaged in the full-time business of promoting uh, politics in the way that, that political parties are. So to me, more effective two-party competition would be a better approach than abandoning partisanship entirely. So more or less, this is a call on Mayor de Blasio to help strengthen the Republican Party in, in New York City? <laughs> well, obviously, as a partisan, he's not going to do that. And since I'm a pretty stalwart Democrat, I wouldn't either. It's, it's a call to the Republicans to get their act together. Um, if you think about it, and I've been studying how immigration has influenced the electorate and the politics, electoral politics of the city, 30% of the voters in New York City now are, are foreign-born. And if you add in their children, that gets it up you know, to 48% or something like that. So almost half of the voters are immigrant origin. And a lot of the groups that have been growing most dramatically in the city, like the Chinese and the South Asians, could be Republican constituencies. They're into self-employment and small business and... No, no regulation. Thank you. Let me do my thing. Um, you know they're they're in sectors like real estate construction and garment manufacturing and restaurants and so forth that um, traditionally have leaned leaned right um, across the nation. If you look at, I mean, I I think the restaurant association is one of the most effective national uh, groups in support of the Republican Party and Republican positions, um, why doesn't the Republican Party, since they're not going to win elections what they're <laughs> with what they're doing now, why don't they find some outsiders who are promising from immigrant origin constituencies and say, you know, we're going to back you and we're going to put up a fight on these things, especially in districts where um, the majorities are of the population have already changed and potentially the majorities of voting uh, voting population are, you know, in the process of changing. It's interesting. Uh, Republicans had J.C. Polanco on the public advocate line and basically did nothing to support him, help him fundraise. He raised I mean, maybe $25,000, $30,000 for a citywide campaign. I mean, it was... Uh, Fascinating to see a lack of support, you know, for someone who is, you know, somewhat moderate and... and you know, and historically, reform in New York City has come out of the Republican side of the aisle, if, if you... I mean, even... Well, he was talking about a charter revision commission in his campaign. <laughs> so, um, you know, I want, I want... I think Democrats would be a stronger, better, more progressive party if they were forced to compete more vigorously for their victories. Um, and I, I think organizing at the base is the key to all of this. Just one more question on the Charter Revision Commission. Um, interested in your take on this. Public advocate Letitia James and Manhattan Borough President Gail Brewer had introduced, I believe, or were on the verge of introducing uh, legislation to create a review commission, and they wanted it to have a much broader scope, and they also wanted it to be, they were, you know, I think... Um, 
calculating politically, you know, have the mayor make a plurality of the appointees, but also let the borough presidents make and the controller yeah. and the public advocate. And it sounds like the mayor's doing his thing with only mayoral appointees. What, what do you make of that? Well, the long arc of administrative reform in New York City has been towards centralizing control in the mayor's office and reducing the influence of, of boroughs, borough presidents, borough offices, borough delegations. Uh, they're still there, and the county party organizations are strong, and, and Corey Johnson's uh, election to the speakership is an example of the continuing strength of those, you know, the, the Bronx and Queens with some additional allies making up, making up a majority. But, um, you know, on the whole, I think it's helped New York become a stronger, better government by being less divided and less having to, uh, you know, there was a lot of log rolling that went on in the old Board of Estimate to, for the mayor to get the votes and um, not always on, you know, what, what reformers would consider to be good policy, good policy principles. You know, at the same time, the government has to be responsive to the neighborhoods and the, and the grassroots and uh, participatory budgeting is a good aspect of that. I, th I think that the mayor's community engagement unit and community assistance and New York City service are doing a lot of interesting things to, to reach out to neighborhoods and, and, and get people uh, or, organized. Um, but it's, it's also good to have, I mean, I do, I do think the council has been somewhat of a an alter ego to the mayor and able to express different points of view and you know hold hold the administrative administration accountable and so i don't think too much has to be changed about that so i feel like just moving away from the speech and this is uh, as we move toward the end uh we're, we're kind of at the end of the beginning of his second term he's won re-election been re-inaugurated we know who his speaker is going to be he's put out his preliminary budget and now the state of the city is done so when you look at de blasio facing term two i think he mentioned last night he has three years 10 months and 15 or now i guess 14 Four, days two, two weeks uh, right exactly three years take 10 hours two right. weeks um you know, Bloomberg used to have a clock, a clock in the bullpen, in right? Bullpen. So that clock is ticking now. And what do you think of his? What are his prospects for the second term? What are your hopes? For what he'll be able to accomplish? What kind of risks do you think he faces now that we kind of know what the state of play is in terms of who's opposite him at City Hall and you know what his what his game plan is going to be? Well, owing to turnlets, he he becomes a termed out person. So his political clout gradually diminishes as, as those years and, and months and weeks dwindle. Um, so I, I think he has to use the first part of his time to the best effect. And continuing the good things that he's doing, and I think the administration has done myriad small things that are extremely creative that people don't pay too much attention to. Um, if you if you look at the Agency for Children's Services reforms and the, the people who are, I mean, that's a very tough assignment in city government, but I think that they've accomplished great things in reducing the number of kids who are in care and making sure that they're located as close as they can be to their pre-existing social networks. That sounds a little wonky, but I think 
um, it's, it's a very important kind of accomplishment. And I, I think you can see things like that throughout the administration. So if he continues to throw his weight behind good people in city agencies doing creative things, that's certainly one thing that we can and should hope for and will be a good, a good legacy. He did say a couple of more big policy things, and I was very interested in the comment about subway financing and that any money that was raised in New York City should stay in New York City. And that got one of his bigger rounds of applauses. Um, if he can do something in the relationship with the MTA and the state to come towards some accommodation on all sides that will produce more revenues and also produce better you know operating statistics for the for the subway system that will be a very important accomplishment and public housing is one of the other big i mean if there there are three jobs in in city government that i wonder why every anyone ever takes them so heading acs and you know that there's going to be some terrible headlines that you're going to have to deal with homeless services and there you're you're fighting very large market forces that are putting the squeeze on a lot of people in housing, and you're just sort of trying to cope with the damage in, in a way. Um, and public housing, where the federal government used to finance the the maintenance, the creation and the maintenance of the capital, and they've stopped doing that. And the revenue model just doesn't produce the revenues that you need to keep the system going. So th we've known that there's a crisis on this front if, if you just search New York City public housing crisis on the New York Times website, you can see articles going back for years and years and years, and we, we don't have a solution to it. Uh, people have talked about, well, let's you know, build revenue-generating buildings on the, on the extra space, but I, I don't think even that is enough to really balance the books on the housing authority. So we've either got to put more city money in, which the city has been doing, or find some more radical way to restructuring the the, the economics of, of public housing in the city. And he said he would address it. So if he does that, and, and he finds a better solution that we've crept up to in the past, that would be a fantastic accomplishment. And so we're just in our last minute or two here with uh, John Mollenkopf. Thanks, thanks for joining us again. Um, just to just to follow up on that final couple of thoughts. Um, Sort of in the landscape of things, do you, it seems to me like Mayor de Blasio sort of needs more allies, you know, especially as you said, the days tick down and his power then wanes a bit because he will be term limited out of office. I think one of the challenges he's faced is some of the issues around, you know, playing nice with others and, um, and political alliances. Um, is that something you see as a as a need that he should really be conscious of? Or, or how do you think of his, his place in the political universe like that? Well, my guess, I mean, just going from what he said, he wants to be a national voice of urban liberalism in the 2018-2020 political cycles. And if he's able to do that, then conceivably he has a a place as a cabinet secretary in a democratic administration, or you know something beyond uh, being being mayor. I don't exactly know why this is, and I ask a lot of my friends who have negative reactions to the mayor why 
they react that way. And they tend to say things like, well, he's a bit of a know-it-all. He lectures us about things that we already know a good deal about. He's late. He's not, you know, respectful enough of, of us. He comes across as a little bit arrogant. Um, I don't, I don't interact with him that way. But, but then again, I, I don't have to interact with him. And the times that I get to talk with him are much more, much more relaxed times where he feels completely comfortable. Um, but I think that if he, if he does some introspection about why people react negatively to him and, and figures out ways to overcome that, he, he has the potential of being a the most or one of the most important spokespeople for urban liberalism, progressivism in the next political cycle. And we need that badly because even though Mr. Trump is our up-the-street neighbor here on, on Fifth Avenue, his budget, his policies are just completely anti-urban and, and diametrically opposed to everything that New York City stands for. Well, John Monkoff, I think we'll leave it there. As you indicated, there's a lot of coalition building for the mayor to do, and he, he mentioned several of those things, calling on New Yorkers to uh, to work with him, to push Albany on things, and so we'll be watching to see if he can uh, make those things happen, maybe starting today on, on Valentine's Day is a good day for him to, to turn the corner there. Clock is ticking. Thank you. Most welcome. <laughs>